Bernie Moreno took issue with some of the things we said over the past week about him opposing the stimulus to appease Donald Trump. There's no doubt he wants to appease Donald Trump. He's been seeking his benediction like all the other Republican candidates for Senate. But he says he was against stimulus spending long before Donald Trump was. Just want to point that out. It's this week in the CLE, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn here with my colleagues, Laura Johnston, Jane Cahoon, and Layla Atassi. It sure feels like it should be Friday, but it's only Thursday, so happy Thursday. Happy Thursday. Happy thunderstorms. And it powers out, lightning all around. Powers out. God. The world is angry. Let's begin. Why can't Ohio force people on Medicaid to work to maintain their benefits despite years of efforts by Republicans to do so? Jane Cahoon, this kind of popped up yesterday, and it, it was a good news story for those who who are on Medicaid and thought, how am, how am I supposed to get a job? Right. Well, the reason is because we now have a Democratic administration in Washington. And uh, basically, you know, and th this is an issue that really splits along party lines. So these work requirements for Medicaid recipients were approved under the Republican Trump administration, but they hadn't been implemented yet in Ohio basically because of the coronavirus pandemic, it really changed the landscape, threw a lot of people out of work and off of their insurance and made a lot of ill people really dependent on the uh, government healthcare coverage. So what happened this week is that the federal centers for Medicare and Medicaid services sent Ohio Medicaid a 23 page letter basically laying out, you know, why they can't do this, uh, which is because they, they, believe these work requirements don't promote the statutory objectives of Medicaid, and they would result in thousands of people getting kicked out of the program at a time when it would be particularly harmful for people to lose access to health care. Um, and, and by the way, the feds also cited all of the problems with Ohio's you know, sign up system, which has been beset by glitches, you know, just like the unemployment system and, and frustrated people who are trying to have their eligibility confirmed and so forth. But uh, the federal government did cite research from the Commonwealth Fund saying 121,000 to up to 163,000 Ohio Medicaid recipients could lose their coverage in the first 12 months of these work requirements. So um, I should note that they would have only applied to low-income people who got Medicaid as a result of the expansion of the program. It wouldn't have applied to aged, blind, or disabled people in the program. And then there were other exceptions, including for people age 50 or older, people who were enrolled full-time in college, career training, or a GED program, people with physical or mental health frailties, and people in treatment for substance use disorders, and caregivers of minor children. So there were a lot of, you know, yeah. exceptions to that. But um, the, the requirement would have made people work 80 hours a month to, to keep these benefits, which the DeWine administration thinks this is reasonable. And in fact, Governor Mike DeWine, along with other Republicans, expressed big disappointment over this decision. He he said the rules would have helped people back to, to self-sufficiency. The, the Democrats do not see it that way. They, well, they feel but, it's just but, kicking poor people off of their um, insurance. Yeah, and, I mean, look, let's face it. This You're right. It's a wedge issue. This is a populist thing with the, the conservative base. But the problem with it is, is it doesn't acknowledge the challenges of people in poverty. 
that that you know get a job and, and you keep your benefits what getting a job means i need transportation to the job and if i don't have money i might not have the transportation it means i have to have some place to put my children while i'm having my job and childcare is difficult so i mean it's just this idea like well if they're getting all these benefits they should work and without thinking about the complications that creates which is why people would have fallen off the rolls if yeah. people need medicaid because they're challenged financially making them work is counterproductive to what we're trying to do and it i it's it's interesting that they've been rejected in this because of the number of people that would have lost it the other problem is i we wrote about this and i don't know how this would play out today was a lot of people said there aren't those kind of jobs available for the people that would need them i guess that would be different today with so many companies that can't find workers yeah, you know, and also I should point out that a lot of poor people do work, you know, multiple jobs often. And uh, so it's just, you know, I think um, this whole thing, you know, sort of paints people as just like, you know, sitting on their butts getting a free ride or something. And, and that's it's so much more complex. Um, right. You know, and uh, that, that I think that this whole thing, because, you know, under the Republicans, you have the worker requirements and under the Democrats now you're not going to. It's like a seesaw. So this issue is eventually, you know, probably going to end up before the U.S. Supreme Court. The, well, I, although the administration gets to make the rules, right? I mean, it's <laughs> right. But then if we in the future get a Republican administration, it'll change. And that's what I meant. Yeah. I mean, what this kind of thing does is it tries to turn an issue with a thousand shades of gray, like poverty, into something that's black and white. Well, if they're getting benefits, they should work. Simple as that. What's the complication? And of course, there are. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. How might Wednesday's endorsement by four-term Cleveland Mayor Frank Jackson of Council President Kevin Kelly to succeed him help or hurt Kelly? Leila Tassi, I'm on a mission today to find out when the last time a sitting incumbent mayor endorsed his successor, because I think it might go back a half century. And then on top of that, you know, Kevin Kelly might not win. When's the last time a mayor endorsed his actual <laughs> successor? Uh, These this, are great this, questions. Yeah. This is barbed, though. This is not. I yeah. mean, I'm not sure this. I'd want this endorsement at this point if I were a candidate. Right. As soon as I saw the news release come across, I was just like, oof, I don't know about this. <laughs> this is this is a gamble. So Jackson, he, he based his endorsement on his 20 year relationship with Kelly and said that you know, Kelly's a man of integrity who's unafraid to make difficult decisions that are in the city's best interest, even if they're not in Kelly's own political interest. And that rings true. I think I can think of a few examples of, of times when, you know, when Kev- Kevin fell on the grenade for issues oh, yeah. that, oh, but yeah. it's, but it's unclear how this endorsement will affect Kelly's chances. Jackson, Jackson remains pretty popular, you know, despite his shortcomings, he, he maintains a super strong base on the city's east side. He, Honestly, he probably could have won another term had he run again. But we can't underestimate the rising movement calling for change. And if that's gaining as much momentum as it seems, you know, Seth Richardson pointed out that Jackson's endorsement of Kelly could doom him. It could leave him vulnerable to getting pegged as the continuity candidate and tie him closely to the problems that Jackson is facing now and the failures of the past two decades, the violence epidemic, uh, the high poverty the constant criticism that the city does for downtown and neglects the neighborhoods and the perception that the schools are failing and just, you know, the never ending police consent decree is another example. And and Kelly has tried to separate himself from Jackson by saying things like, 
you know, Jackson was the right mayor at the right time, but it's time for a new path forward. But now, you know, he's also saying that he's honored by this uh, endorsement. And, um, you know, I'm sure that that Kelly is hoping that this means he gains the confidence of Eastside Jackson loyalists. So, yeah, I just, you know, I, I agree with you that Frank Jackson remains very popular. People always underestimated Frank Jackson, but the residents of Cleveland did not. He he won handily when he ran. And, and you're right. I think he probably could have won again. It would have been close. But but even the people who support him want change. They, 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 they respect him, but they also know after 16 years, you need a fresh perspective and I do think that by getting the endorsement, you're right. Kelly becomes a continuation of the Jackson era. And that's not, I think, going to help him on either side of town. I, I'm just I'm surprised that Jackson didn't, you know, maybe provide some money or things, but to come out so fully in favor. I'm surprised we haven't heard from Dennis Kucinich yet saying, see, see, it's a continuation of the Jackson era. Yeah, except it's interesting. I feel like Kevin probably has a strong following on the West side, but probably had no following on the East side. So he probably hedged his bets and decided that, you know, this endorsement would, would only help him on the east side where where so many were loyal to to jackson so i don't know i mean yeah to, to jackson yeah go ahead it wasn't supposed to come this early i mean i actually got a call from somebody saying man that wasn't supposed to be announced yet how did you guys get it and it's like well they sent us a press release i, I think what happened is our endorsement we, we the editorial board made yeah. a very very strong endorsement of justin bibb yes. from what i understand that has really jump-started his fundraising, which was already robust, but there are people writing him checks. It gave him a boost. And I I think that might have scared the Kevin Kelly campaign because all of a sudden they did this. They put up, there's a website now just ripping into the Dennis Kucinich era as mayor. It's It even has, well, I think, news footage of Walter Cronkite describing when, when the city went bankrupt. Oh, really? So, yeah, it's big stuff. So, I, so Kevin Kelly, who has a, a lot of money, I mean, at the last accounting, he had the most is using it. He's starting to do his messaging, but the uh, I, the Jackson endorsement coming yesterday felt like a little bit of panic. What were you going to say? No, I was just going to say, you know, to Jackson's point about Kelly making decisions that are in the city's interest, but not his own, you know, he's definitely not wrong about that. What, what came to mind immediately when I read that was, was Kelly's staunch opposition to raising the minimum wage in Cleveland to $15 an hour. That made him look like a total enemy of the people at the time. But honestly, a higher minimum wage in Cleveland alone without raising wages in surrounding cities would have been catastrophic. And Kelly was right about that. So he just he just, you know, took the brunt of that. Uh, and, and you know, when that happened, I immediately recognized that that could scuttle his aspirations to become mayor one day, especially since he promised that he would get behind a statewide effort to raise the minimum wage. And he never bothered to. Oddly, no one is talking about that in this race, though. But on the flip side, you know, since since then, Kevin Kelly has been kind of the driving force behind a number of progressive initiatives, most, you know, most notably that uh, the campaign to stem the infant mortality epidemic and the right to counsel program that in, that ensures that impoverished families facing eviction have legal representation. So to a large extent, perhaps that has kind of batted away the negative impression that people had of him after the minimum wage issue. But uh, he yeah. also he also took a hit for battling to to save the Q deal, the, oh, yeah. the renovation of the arena. That was another uh, one I th- there was too. so much politics in that. And 
you know, that was a good deal for the city. It was the best deal with, with a, a team really at the time of any place in the United States. The Cavs were putting in more of an investment than any team in any other arena. And it became mired in the mayor's race. And he did what it took to keep that going because he knew the investment was good. So I, you're right. He's done things that would hurt him politically. He's championed some causes that were pretty good. On the other hand, all of the issues he's talking about that he wants to work on as mayor, he's had eight years as council president. That's the second most powerful position in the city. And he could have used his power to get that stuff done. I also, Ken Johnson, you know, Ken Johnson, no, no, no. Ken Johnson, Ken Johnson. He fleeced the city for 10 years and he's the council president. Right. Right under Kelly's nose. It's you know, yeah. yeah. So it's it's uh, we'll have to see if this hurts or helps him. You're listening to this week in the CLE. Will we have a flu season this year? Laura Johnston, we were thinking we would. Everybody was taking their masks off. Everybody was getting back together. All of a sudden, the Delta variant raises some interesting questions. What did we find out when we went out and asked the experts? Yeah, well, we also thought COVID was like on its way out. So it really depends about this flu season, whether we're still keeping the precautions of last year. If we're wearing masks, if we're social distancing, if we're staying home, that made flu season nearly non-existent. And right now, it's pretty quiet in the Southern Hemisphere, which is experiencing winter right now. So it's currently flu season. Usually researchers use the information from the Southern Hemisphere to predict which flu strains are going to be in circulation during our flu season. But without that, you know, I mean, they're always guessing, but whether they guess the right ones to put in the flu shot, that's always up for debate. So um, the researchers really don't know if we're going to have a strong flu season or not. And and we're, we're really just going to have to see. But they, they keep saying, go get your flu shot. They're actually going to be available very soon. Okay, you're listening to This Week in the CLE. What's behind the decision to make Bruce Vanderhoff, who we all got to know from his regular appearances in Ohio, Governor Mike DeWine's coronavirus briefings, the new Ohio health director. Jane Cahoon, is there any kind of funny business going on here or is this something that we fully expected and makes sense? Oh, gosh, I wish I could tell you what's behind it, but the DeWine administration wasn't really offering an explanation on this. So I'll just say that Dr. Vanderhoff, as you said, he's basically been the face of the administration's efforts to combat the coronavirus, just like Dr. Amy Acton was in the early days of the pandemic. So I guess he might as well have the top job, right? Um, As you might recall, after Acton left in June 2020, DeWine had a really hard time filling this job because, you know, qualified public health professionals just weren't interested in being harassed and threatened like like Acton was by people who really reacted negatively to the coronavirus restrictions. So he had one candidate accept and then back out. And anyway, he eventually named Stephanie McLeod, another one of his cabinet members who headed the Bureau of Workers' Compensation to be the health director. She had she had no medical or public health experience, but it was it was believed, I guess, that McLeod had been brought in maybe to run the department temporarily while Vanderhoff, who who was previously with um, the Ohio Health Medical Chain, you know, got more state experience. So McLeod, you know, who we almost never saw during DeWine's briefings, she's going back to the Workers' Compensation Bureau where she'll probably be 
happy. Um, so, you know, all DeWine did was issue this like canned quote saying that, you know, working together as a team, Stephanie McLeod and Bruce Vanderhoff guided the Ohio Department of Health over the last um, nine months. And, and he's pleased that Vanderhoff's agreed to serve as a director and his expertise will, will help us move forward. So beyond that, I, I wish I knew more, but I just don't. It is interesting that when Acton was health director, she was the daily presence in the in the coronavirus briefings. But when Vanderhoff was not made health director, he was made whatever it is, medical director. He took that role. It felt like he had replaced Amy Acton, even though he hadn't. So this this does feel like kind of a natural thing. And it does make sense. He had no experience in this kind of thing. So giving him whatever it was, eight, nine months of it before putting him in. Um, seems to make some sense. And maybe they wanted to get to know him. I guess they couldn't afford if they would have put him in back then and he fumbled all over it. They really couldn't have afforded to have more problems with the way they were managing the pandemic. Right. Right. And, you know, I don't know, maybe he had some reluctance about accepting the top job at the beginning. I don't know. I just don't know. Well, it's it's nice to have a doctor is the, <laughs> the director. Yeah, yes, of yes, it is. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. How much have corona cases in Ohio risen in a month? Leila Tassi, we've talked about this over the past couple of weeks. It keeps rising, but man, oh man, it is staggering now it where is. we're at. It is. The Ohio Department of Health reported 3,393 new COVID cases on Wednesday from the previous day. Laura Hancock reports that Wednesdays tend to have the highest numbers of the week. But last Wednesday, there were 2,100 cases, and that was high for Ohio. The rolling 21-day average of of COVID cases in Ohio continues to climb, too. On Wednesday, it was 1430. That's up from 939 a week ago and 264 on July 14th. And so obviously, you know, we're dealing with this more contagious Delta variant. The lab sequencing between July 4th and July 17th shows more than 86% of cases were Delta. The percent of COVID-19 tests that are positive was 8.5% as of Monday, a positivity rate over 8% is included in the CDC's definition of of a community that's experiencing high infection rates and should be wearing masks and doing all the right things. But, you know, people are really, really, really dumb and not doing that. (laughs) (laughs) That wasn't included in Laura Hancock's reporting. That's my own (laughs) enterprise. So you're welcome. (laughs) (laughs) I think Jane Cahoon told me yesterday that the number yesterday was higher than at the same time last year. Was that you said that, Jane, or am I misremembering? It wasn't me. It was someone else. But um, could I just, uh, since you called on me here, just add that Dr. Bruce Vanderhoff, the um, who was just named the director of the Department of Health, is holding a briefing today to give us yet another update on this oh, really? grim situation. So we should know more. I mean, Layla, the- you're not going to know the answer to this. I don't <laughs> think. But, but does the state break down the cases between those who are vaccinated and those who are not vaccinated? Uh, that's a so great we- question. And you're right. I don't know the answer. But more people are seeking the vaccine. The twice as many people reported starting their first shot this week than in like mid-July. Uh, you know, so that's that's good news. Uh, well, I think people they, are finally getting scared straight on, on this. Right. But <laughs> one know. thing we do know is that the overwhelming majority of people who are hospitalized with COVID have not been vaccinated. Overwhelming. Yeah. 
Yeah, well, I'm just, we keep hearing about more and more people who are vaccinated who get the, get the virus, and they describe it as a bad flu. They're not being hospitalized, they're not being put on ventilators, and they're largely not dying. I, I'm just curious what percentage of, and maybe he'll talk about that, or maybe they're not tracking it just yet, but as this, it, it's frightening as kids go back to school, because you'll start to see the spread as they go back to school. You're going to have a lot more congregating um, they'll be bringing it home and how many vaccinated people suddenly will be getting the coronavirus. Can I well, add something in? This is Laura Johnston. Um, I think it was 99%, I think, when we looked last week of the hospitalized cases, but they didn't have the numbers for just cases vaccinated versus unvaccinated. But last year on August 12th of 2020, there was 1,422. So we have more than double what we had last year. So Laura's the one that told me that statistic. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) You're listening to This Week in the CLE. What's the thinking behind asking people to tell us where they were and what they were doing when they learned of the events of 9-11 as we approach the 20th anniversary next month? Laura Johnston, we have had a huge response to this. Lots of people are telling us their stories. Absolutely. I can't even tell you how many people, dozens and dozens, and I'm still getting emails, but they they responded to your, Chris's, um, subtext messaging account, or they emailed me or filled out a form on our, our online story. But people just want to talk about this. I kind of feel like this is collective grief, this need to share your story, to tell your own little piece of history and kind of commune with people. So some are what you'd expect, people in the midst of their regular morning routines at work or at school, just totally shocked, totally devastated. Some people were out of town. I had one person who was internationally, they couldn't get home, or other people who were in the country, they had to rent cars, and they just talked about the absolute emptiness of the interstates. They talked about how they'd just recently been to New York City, or they knew people there, and they talked about calling their wives or moms or kids or husbands and gathering the family that they had to watch together. We had people that were worrying about Cleveland as a target. Former city councilman Joe Simperman actually um, emailed me and said he was at City Hall for a committee meeting and they were told to get out of the building. And so everybody has these very visceral memories of that moment when they knew the world was going to change. And we're going to publish these in multiple platforms. We'll have them on cleveland.com. We'll put as many as we can in the Plain Dealer, right? Absolutely. We will. I'm I'm astounded by the number, but we will make sure that we print all of them online and in print. We'll also have some staff written essays from different age groups and how they've experienced it. We have a whole whole plan for this 20 year anniversary, which it does seem hard to believe it's been 20 years. But yeah, yeah, 20 years is a good prism to look back on. You can really assess how it permanently changed society. It's a lot harder to look five years because things are still going. I mean, we keep talking about what are the permanent changes of the coronavirus and we have no idea because we're in the middle of it and we're going to need some hindsight to do it. 20 years of hindsight on 9-11 will provide a pretty good look at how it affected us. Look for all that coming up next month on all of our platforms. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Did Ohio Governor Mike DeWine have success by offering 100 bucks to state employees to get the coronavirus vaccine? Jane Cahoon, he keeps trying to buy people into getting protected <laughs> because they're not being scared straight, as Leila Tassi would say. Yes. Did this work? Well, it seems like he's had some success with this. The Associated Press got the numbers, and 
They show that since DeWine made this offer last month, nearly 900 state employees and more than 200 of their spouses took advantage of this incentive, which was, as you said, 100 bucks for employees and then 25 bucks for their spouses. But, you know, Ohio has about 50,000 employees, Ohio, the state of Ohio, and we just don't know for sure how many of them, like, were already vaccinated when this offer came about, you know, nor do we know, we don't have an overall number for how many are now vaccinated. So, um, you know, DeWine is doing this, of course, because as we talked about on the previous segment, the cases are are really rising due to this highly contagious Delta variant. Uh, the The governor also last week strongly encouraged local health departments to offer their own incentives, whatever they think is right to get people to get these shots. So, um, you know, it's just, is it working? I don't know. Well, what's, what's interesting is what's, what's the right price, right? We talked about the County jail (laughs) earlier this week. They're offering incentives worth about 50 bucks, not cash, but incentives. And here we have a hundred bucks. What's the right price to get people off the dime to protect themselves? It's, it's looking for the, the exact number and how, how people would be affected by it. It's, it's fascinating. I mean, yeah, I, don't I think, think it really depends people. on how persuadable you are. If you're like dug in, you know, down a rabbit hole with some of these conspiracy theories, a hundred bucks, isn't going to change your mind, but you know, no, but there's still a lot of people I think that just haven't gotten around to it. And, and maybe this gets them around to it. it, it we'll have to see Does he offer now a higher rate? Okay. We got, we got 900 <laughs> with a hundred bucks. What will we get if we offer 200 bucks? That's going to really make the people mad who, who went for the hundred <laughs> and didn't hold out for more. Yeah. You're listening to this week in the CLE. How much did the coronavirus cut Cleveland tourism by in 2020? Tassi, Susan Glazer had a talk with Destination Cleveland, which actually quantified this. It was pretty dire. It is, man. COVID is such a bummer. (laughs) Susan Glazer reported that. So Dave Gilbert, the CEO of the region's tourism agency, Destination Cleveland, said at the annual meeting that Greater Cleveland saw a 30% drop in visitors in 2020 and that it'll be years before the region recovers to pre-pandemic numbers. Northeast Ohio had 13.8 million visitors in 2020, and that was down from 19.6 million in 2019. But, you know, of course, Gilbert was, you know, he's the consummate cheerleader for this region. So he was very confident that the region would rebound and would do it faster than the rest of the nation. He projected that by 2024, the region would regain its tourists and be back up to the 20 million, 20 million benchmark. And, and we're seeing signs of that with more leisure travelers visiting the city and increased activity at the Huntington Convention Center and other, you know, meeting sites. Destination Cleveland is is working with the convention center and downtown hotels and and has rebooked 102 meetings and conventions for future years. So that's great news. Uh, so far, the circulation of the Delta variant hasn't deterred visitors. That's good news too. But Gilbert said recent traveler survey suggests that it could have a mild effect on tourism. A region might be spared the brunt of that impact because we're a region that typically people drive to rather than fly and people are more comfortable traveling by car during a pandemic than by plane. And, uh, that, you know, I, what, what really struck me about this, I was most interested in some of the other numbers that he shared about the overall feelings people have about our city. 
36% of millennial travelers surveyed in 2021 said that they would consider Cleveland as a destination, and that's up from 14% in 2014. 81% of greater Cleveland residents said they would recommend Cleveland as a place to visit. That's up from 34% in 2014. So, you know, I'm sure that shift in perspective coincides with Destination Cleveland's rebranding effort a number of years ago. I remember them coming in to talk to us about that and talking about how, you know, stale some of the the branding has been, you know, preceding that. Remember, they were like, yeah, no one really thinks of rock and roll anymore. When they think of Cleveland, we need to go a different direction. Um, but, you know, Gilbert said that they're planning another such campaign in 2022 to reflect the changing opinions of Cleveland. And they're, they're also continuing to work with a number of partners in an effort to encourage people to relocate here. Remember, that really got under New York City's skin a while back. That was hilarious. But uh, but you, you know what would really make us look good to outsiders? Herd immunity. <laughs> yeah, Get your shots, people. Let's let's boost tourism. <laughs> the, 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 what, what's, I'm a little bit surprised at his rosy prediction because of the Delta variant. I, I mean, say you had been scheduled to come to Cleveland for a meeting of your profession and and we're in this now. Would you still go? Oh, heck no. No, I mean, I think I think conventions are a terrible idea right now. But but, you know, I think people are more willing to go visit a place and, you know, socially distance. But I think that's impossible to do at a convention. Yeah, people right? are vacationing. Clearly, people are vacationing. I just for the meetings that they count on at the convention center. I would think that a lot of people would be, I don't want to bring this home to my family, that when you get right. people together in groups, I mean, I get it. You can wear the N95 masks and you can largely protect yourself, but but why risk it when you could just get together on Zoom right. and see people there? I suspect that the severity of the Delta variant is just now sinking in for people and that we might see a public opinion change soon about whether it's safe to be traveling or especially to go to go to a convention, for example, or even to be sitting in the ballpark. I mean, I I, I don't know. I, I think that people were, were excited by this change. You know, we all thought that we were coming out on the other end of the pandemic. It will be just a matter of time before everyone realizes how serious the situation is again. Yeah, well, we're going into the fall when it'll spread rapidly. I mean, the scary thing is it's spreading in the summer. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. That's it for a Thursday. Come back tomorrow for the wind-up of the week of news. Thanks, Laura. Thanks, Jane. Thanks, Layla. Thank you to everybody who listens to the podcast. <laughs>